For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. We are now just a week away from early voting in the 2018 <laughs> general election. Yay! <laughs> Um, and for the past few weeks, we've been going over the state questions facing voters. The final one for us is state question 801, allowing schools to spend the building fund portions of their collected property taxes on any other operational expenses. Ryan, will this give more money to, to schools for the classrooms? Well, it absolutely won't. There's, it won't increase the amount of money coming, coming into schools because, I mean, if you look at every county and state school district around the state, the maximum that they can have is uh, the maximum amount of ad valorem or property tax that they can assess is already being assessed. So this won't increase the amount of money coming, coming into to your local school district. But what it would do would allow your local school district to tap into that long-term building fund and then put that money into something like uh, teacher salaries or teacher benefits, uh, class, you know, classroom instruction. And I think that in the, in the wake of the, the education year that we've had, the idea of increasing the amount of money uh, going into classrooms and possibly going into teachers' pockets is a very, is a very persuasive argument. But I think that voters would be, uh, would be wise to step back and think for a second about what that building fund actually is. It's a, think of it more of a savings account instead of a checking, a checking account. It's the long-term solvency of you know, keeping those buildings in, in a lot of these places, like my, my whole uh, hometown high school, Seminole High School, that they had to move out of because it was in such decrepit condition. Being able to invest in repairs, keep these things from falling down, put a new roof on whatever you need to. If those funds are suddenly up for grabs for teacher pay raises, I think local school districts are going to have a hard time hanging on to that money for whenever they need to make investments in buildings. And, they, and also, of course, they, they go out for the bonds. They tell people, hey, we're going to build this for a, a, a gym. But if then they, they turn around and use it for a for pay raises, that might not be quite the same thing. Well, again, it's about local control and giving them the flexibility to do what they need in their particular district. I think uh, a Senator Bice, uh, who was one of the co-authors of the bill, I mean, she always uses, a, I think, a very good illustration about this. She says if a, a school district gets a million dollars in their building and maintenance fund and they only need 900000 that 100000 then could be utilized for some other classroom need, a, a science lab equipment, whatever it might be. So, again, it brings that flexibility back to the local district, how they manage, how they use those funds. So I think this argument that somehow uh, people are going to uh, – we shouldn't do this because people will misappropriate or mismanage the uh, those dollars and, and cause some sort of a, a problem at the local level, that's where we need to have more local involvement involvement and more local uh, interest uh, by the by the by the teachers parents uh, everyone involved in that community so i think this is really the business community on one side in in large measure versus some of the education establishment who don't want uh, who don't want this change uh, and want to uh, kind of I think, throw out many of their arguments that really, quite frankly, don't hold much water. And I understand it also there's a matter of equity as well, that, that some schools might have a lot more money in their building fund, so they could then uh, try to get teachers away from, you know, local school districts that are nearby. And I think that that's a real possibility that they could, you could see some of the wealthier school districts, and that already happens to some extent. I mean, they're already the uh, greater beneficiaries of property taxes that you bring in more revenue, but yeah, their ability to go in and poach teachers from lower income areas, I think, increases. Something I did want to point out, Michael, you said bond, uh, you, you talked about bond measures. 
there's a lot of confusion because people were saying, why is it the teachers are coming to the Capitol and walking out whenever and asking for more money and to get education? When we look in our local districts and we see things like new stadiums being built and new gymnasiums being built, well, those are being built with bond money. And that's not out of the building. That's not out of these, this building maintenance fund that we're talking about. The building maintenance fund okay. is different than money that comes in from bonds. So those are, those are two separate things. If you go out for a bond and you say, we're going to build a gymnasium, you got to build a gymnasium. Right. The building maintenance fund that is, comes from property <clears throat> tax, ad valorem taxes, ad valorem right. taxes. And you know, so when we talk about the building maintenance, fund, building maintenance fund become going into competition with some of the other uh, needs in a school district, what I'm seeing there is if you if you're a school board member and you're up for election and you see that maybe five years from now you need a roof, but you've got teachers in your district right now that need a pay raise and the state legislature is not giving them that pay raise, then you might give them that pay raise and, and then not have the money five years down the road for the roof. You I, know, it's interesting. I mean, even in the gubernatorial uh, candidates, I mean, there's there's a contrast on this issue. I mean, Kevin Stitt has said he supports it. Uh, Drew Edmonds had said he's opposed it, kind of for some mm-hmm. of the arguments on both sides that we've just mentioned. But when you talk about the money and the, and the use of this, quote, building fund, I mean, it's beyond the repairs and the maintenance and the new construction. And they also have uh, the ability to use one-time expenses, and they, they use it for things like software or band uniforms or, you know, any number of things that qualify in that category. So, you know, again, I think what the voters have got to look at is how they want the flexibility or not have the flexibility with this constitutional change uh, that would take place with this state question on how the uh, monies could be used in these individual districts. Are you surprised that we haven't seen much on the state questions <laughs> in, in advertisement? We see yeah. a lot of the campaigns. Well, it's hard to raise yeah. money for these yeah. state questions. I mean, and uh, something that doesn't have much sizzle and and really <laughs> has a, uh, you know, you, you look at where where the dollars are going to uh, come from. I mean, on both sides, they're already largely engaged in either individual political candidate campaigns or in other state questions, perhaps. So I think, uh, I think this becomes incumbent upon the voters to really pay attention mm-hmm. to these state questions and do their own research. And I, and I do say that uh, each year and each election cycle, I do think we have the opportunity to have more and better information out there uh, at their disposal that they can really uh, kind of sift through and make, their, and make an informed decision on each of these questions. Maybe aside from the conversations that we've had here, the best resource for these state questions is the Oklahoma Policy Institute, okpolicy.org. They have the, the, the pros and the cons of, of each one of these. So it's, it's, a, it's a balanced look at the state questions. It gives you the language that you're going to see on your ballot, but it also gives you a sense of you know, who, the advocates, what they're saying, and the opponents, what they're saying, and you've got it all in one place. And then they have some other links on each of these state questions to do some further reading and research. So okpolicy.org. And, and you can read up on all of the ballot measures. How would you say people would, would, would go? Would they, if they're just going in and they, they don't know yes or no whether, whether they're going to vote, if they, if they just kind of look at these questions, where do you think the, the, the default is for Oklahoma? Well, historically, it is, the default has been yes. When you look at the percentage mm-hmm. of state questions that That's have passed, wondered, yeah. both the yeah. midterm, you know, particularly in these uh, midterm cycles, I mean, it is uh, overwhelming that they have passed. So I think state questions, by and large, unless there is a concerted effort to, to have opposition to a question uh, or depending on the wording I mean whether the you know how it's wording on whether it's the yes or the no is the is the uh, uh, what the proponents you know and opponents kind of how they how they tee that up bottom line is I think there is a natural inclination to to vote yes unless given something really compelling Mm. otherwise yeah I mean I think that that's right I think that every ballot measure starts off with a with a presumptive pass it's going to pass and unless there is a strong opposition to a ballot measure 
Um, there, are, there are very few examples that I can think of where there's been a ballot measure that hasn't had a funded opposition that has still that has failed. The yeah. only one I can think of is the Ten Commandments ballot measure that happened during the last election cycle, uh, where you know, groups like the ACLU, we are out against that, but nobody was spending a lot of money right. trying to defeat it, and it still failed. You know, it's interesting this year because really the, the bill that uh, is the Walmart bill, for lack of a better description, that's mm-hmm. being called, I mean, the, where you have the optometr- optometrist versus, yeah. uh, you know, versus the big box company. Companies, uh, and that constitutional change. I mean, that has there has seemed to be much more parity in terms of the spending uh, statewide on that particular issue. So it'll be interesting to see if this one, uh, how this one works in the equation in terms of whether it passes or fails. And Which, comments. I've seen 793 is, is probably one of our most commented uh, posts on Facebook right now. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are, have, have an opinion one side or the other. Well, and, and, you know, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of direct democracy and I think the ballot measures allow the people to do things that the legislature just doesn't have the guts to do in many instances. But at the same time, you know, this, this ballot measure we're just now talking about, about building maintenance funds. Uh, you look at the optometry question and whether, you know, I think one of the biggest complaints about that is that it's going to go into the Constitution and not into statute. You know, the, the arguments for and against these can get into the weeds really fast. That's not to say that voters can't understand them, but that there's so much information there for them to consider that the voter that just walks into the ballot booth uh, without having that opportunity to really study both sides, I think is at a, a real disadvantage. And I think all of us then are at a disadvantage because we have policy banking that's occurring without all of the information yeah, on the It's hard table. to put but, that on a bumper sticker too. But by the same yeah. token, there are a lot of folks that will go into the polling booth that when they see these state questions and they have not taken time to become informed or have little interest, voter interest, they simply pass on those. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think you have the give and take on that as well. That's right. So time is running out for the candidates for governor, Republican Kevin Stitt and Democrat Drew Edmondson are traveling across the state working to get more voters and even taking part in forums and debates. Neva, how would you rate this race and the last minute push by candidates? Well, I mean, it's been a very competitive race like we've talked about all along. I will say that of the published uh, polls that are out there and and we get into this final sprint, we see a lot of information coming out. Sometimes the, the campaigns themselves putting the information out. Sometimes uh, uh, just interested uh, groups that are polling and, and tracking. And the, the spread right now appears anywhere from three to eight points uh, with Kevin Stitt leading uh, since the primary uh, I've yet to see a, a published poll out there that shows uh, uh, Drew Edmondson with a lead. So, you know, at this point, I think uh, I think the competition is still fierce, and I think that we can expect it to be a fast and furious finish, but all of the advantages seem to be trending toward uh, the Republican in this race. What do you think Drew Edmondson has to do, if I mean, except for hope for something to happen, <laughs> but, but, I mean, for him to, to proactively do? You know, I think that he's doing everything that he can. You know, the Neva talks about published uh, polls. I've seen some uh, internal numbers that suggest that Drew and uh, Drew Edmondson and Kevin Sitter tied uh, at this, you know, at this point in the game. And, you know, I think that it, it is really uh, one of the, it's, it's a much more competitive gubernatorial race than we've seen in quite a while in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, and I do think that as a Republican, Stitt has a generic advantage there just as a Republican on the ballot in Oklahoma. But everything that Drew could do right now, he's doing. Uh, I mean, I think he's, you know, and we saw it in some of the, the forums, he's becoming you know, very aggressive in pointing out that Kevin Stitt said he wants, Kevin Stitt says he wants to put more money in education, but at the same time has no plan to add revenue to the state of Oklahoma and that his idea that we can create money out of nothing is just a fairy tale. 
when we look at uh, hospital closures, one of the most recent ones in Wilberton, my wife's hometown, and Drew Edmondson out reminding voters that the decision to not accept Medicaid expansion funding in the state of Oklahoma, a purely political decision, was one of the most disastrous and consequential decisions made by any governor in the history of Oklahoma, and Kevin Stitt won't do anything different. And I think that, you know, Drew Edmondson has to make this case to the people of Oklahoma that if they are not satisfied with the last eight years, that they shouldn't expect anything different from Kevin Stitt. Kevin Stitt wants to make a case otherwise, but he can't name a single instance in which he would be different than Mary Fallon. And what does Stitt need to do to make sure that well, he wins Well, I, th- I think Stitt is uh, maintaining basically the, the same um, the same style of campaign and and taking his message to the people that he's done from day one. And it's basically the outsider versus the insider message. I mean, here's someone he's running against who's been in political life for many, many years, uh, attorney general, district attorney, uh, for a couple of decades. Uh, so you have you have this uh, framework that is with a backdrop of the national picture that I think is really influencing, as it always does, in, in the uh, races in Oklahoma, where the Oklahoma voter sees this national picture of Democrat versus is Republican, and it it favors the Republican overwhelming. And I think when you look at the generic ballot advantage, which uh, Ryan mentioned, uh, where you've got uh, anywhere from a 15 to an 18 point generic advantage starting out, that's a that is a that's a very significant position to start from as the Republican nominee. So I think when you look at the down ballot races, secondary races where there's very little competition, uh, Republicans in internal as well as published polling are in double digits on almost uh, straight down the, the ticket. Um, all of that uh, trends well, even though we we naturally have the strongest focus on the gubernatorial race. I think when you look at the message and what voters in Oklahoma want and what, they, uh, uh, what they're responding to, it would appear that Kevin Stitt's on the right track with this message. And correct me if I'm wrong, if Kevin Stitt wins this, it'll be the first time ever in Oklahoma that a Republican has won a as one with with the current Republican sitting in the, in the seat. I, I believe mm-hmm. that's correct. I think that that's right. You know, it's it's uh, you know I know that Kevin Stitt doesn't want anything to do with Governor Fallon and you know has distanced himself from her as much as he he can, even though there's not a lot of daylight between the two of them on positions, and and uh, has you know refused her endorsement, said he didn't seek it. Mary Fallon did for Kevin Stitt the one thing that I think is uh, probably making this race as tight as it is right now. And she set state question 788 for that June primary ballot, the medical marijuana referendum. Right now, you know, Neva talked about there's not a lot of excitement on the down ballot races. The state questions that we have right now, while they're incredibly important, they're not drawing a lot of people to the polls. State question 788 brought so many record number of people out in that primary. We may have, we may see on election night in November uh, coming up, fewer people at the polls on a general election ballot than there were at a primary election ballot, which is just wild. And if she had set that for that November election ballot, I've got to think that the voters that showed up in June, if they were guaranteed to show up in November, that that generic uh, uh, ballot, uh, uh, that generic ballot uh, uh, favorability that Stitt's walking into this with would just be erased. But currently they probably don't want the voters that would show up for this day for that state, state question 788. Well, and and I think that if, if those folks, if, if a large measure of those first time new voters that showed up at state question 788, if they'll show up in November and remind not just the gubernatorial candidates, but the state legislate, state legislators, Hey, we're still here. We're watching you. We want good implementation, which we've seen so far, uh, but we're still out there. Certainly I think that that could of a tip the scale in, in, 
favor of Drew Edmondson. I think when you also factor in the straight party voting mm. uh, element to this equation, it has been overwhelmingly trending for Republican straight party voting by Republicans as well as Democrats. So again, that's a factor that I think bodes well for the Republicans. Which, yeah, I, back when I was in the state legislature, I, I ran a bill to eliminate straight party voting. <laughs> and the biggest opposition to that were my Democratic county party officials. And I said, we should get rid of this. Uh, and, you know, here we are. See, uh, listen. You know, Democrats they, they, didn't like it all those years I when know. they were dominating I know, in the I numbers. I know. They so. were still winning them then. And <laughs> I said, well, let's, let's get rid of it while it's good, guys. Uh, right. <laughs> There are also statewide races as well as in the uh, in the House and Senate. So so I was hoping to talk about any other elections which have your attention. Ryan, let's start with you. Uh, any races you think we should be watching for? Yeah, I think the, the most exciting race, uh, aside from the gubernatorial race right now, the most exciting race in the state of Oklahoma is the 5th District Race for Congress, Kinder Horn versus Steve Russell. This is a race that has national attention, could have national implications. Uh, I think that Kendra Horn, she's going to make history on election night. Whether she wins, uh, which if she does, she'll be the first Democrat to hold that seat since the 1970s. If she doesn't win, I think that she's going to get to at least within five points of Steve Russell, which will make her one of the most competitive uh, and successful Democratic candidates in that race. And we'll, we'll send a signal that moving forward uh, that maybe in two years from now, four years from now, uh, that that seat is going to be competitive. And it's likely that the Republican stronghold on congressional districts in the state of Oklahoma is close to coming to an end. Uh, so Kendra Horn, Steve Russell, I think that she's got a real shot of winning that. If she wins, then the, the turnout model, I think, then would suggest that the voters that she's bringing to the polls in the 5th District could have a huge impact on Drew Edmondson's ability to win on election night as well. Yeah, and that could also matter for the down ballot, down ballot too, is if you get a lot of people from Oklahoma County voting for Drew Edmondson, that could that could help as yeah. well. Uh, Neva, is there something you're watching? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I would agree that uh, CD5 is definitely the race to watch. It's the most competitive congressional race in some time. And I think while um, several weeks back, we would uh, we would see a lot of polling and indicators that, uh, that it was a very tight race. Again, I think much like the gubernatorial race, I think that we can see both of these expand almost in parallel sequence. So um, it, the, I think the question will be the margin and whether it's five points or 10 points, I mean, or whatever that spread is, uh, will be largely dictated by how Republicans and Democrats come out. And, and, and it is a big question. Mark. I mean, we always have lower voter participation in these midterm elections, and I think uh, I think intensity has a lot to do with it and the ground game. So um, I think both sides have to really marshal their forces. And I do believe in 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 the fifth congressional district that the the um, uh, impact in terms of the legislative races is more significant than probably anywhere else in the state yeah. because we have seen some very competitive uh, House and Senate seats in the metropolitan area, more so than in the Tulsa area or other parts of the state. So this will be kind of the focus, I think, on election night in terms of where the trends are and whether they're really continuing down this uh, down this road to be much more uh, much more competitive in the in the metropolitan area, or whether we see a swing back to a much more dominated Republican. 
looking like. Yeah, I saw a Muskogee paper, a story in the paper about the Muskogee trying to, Democrats trying to get take back that position. And it's just, it's it could be very, November 6th could be a very Well, it's always day. about turnout. And yeah. I mean, people hear that and over and over and over again and kind of tune it out. But at the end of it, the surprises in any election, in a, any election season is about turnout and intensity. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that at the national level where, you know, months back, I mean, there was this uh, basic narrative that, uh, the, that the Republicans would, in all likelihood, lose the House, could lose the Senate. Now it looks like Republicans will pick up uh, three or four or five Senate seats and and uh, very competitive and seats that were uh, really in, in question in the congressional races are now back uh, either competitive or Republicans back in the, uh, back in the lead. So uh, again, it's this national versus localized election you know, season. And for that, Republicans in Oklahoma um, have always done very well when it's been a night like that. And if Kendra Horn wins on election night, look for her, uh, a member of Congress from Oklahoma, to become one of the most recognizable names in, in national politics. It would be a big national story without sure. question. Yeah. An article in Sunday's Oklahoman shows a battle between outgoing Governor Mary Fallon and current State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister. This stems from an executive order last year requiring the Board of Education to provide a list of all school districts which spend less than 60% of budget on instruction. To which Hoffmeister replied, she doesn't work for Governor Fallon. Neva, were you surprised by this? <laughs> I wasn't really surprised. I think that there's a little bit of posturing going on here. I mean, it always helps if you're on the ballot uh, versus someone who's not, <laughs> that you want to make sure that uh, your folks, particularly in the education community, think that you're you're not just being the hard partisan that just has uh, the R next to your name and, and you're just kind of going going down the road that way, but are really engaged with the folks that, that uh, in large measure, are the ones that care most about that position, the education community. So, um, you know, the give and take on the actual exchange, I mean, this is something that's been out there for months. I mean, the deadline was mm-hmm. September 1 that came and went that that got no, uh, that, yeah, uh, got, got no that response. Too. I mean, when you have the legal counsel from the State Board of Education basically uh, telling that board that, look, don't do this for X, Y, and Z reasons, and all of the, you know, all of the questions that were raised that kind of stalled it out, I think the bigger, the bigger takeaway for me is that these are the very issues that I think we will continue to see the next legislature really key in on and address in a much more significant way. Ryan. Well, and I think that we talked about Mary Fallon giving gifts to statewide candidates on the ballot. What a great gift to give to Joy Hoffmeister so that (laughs) she can stand up to a sitting governor has, has this great line of, you know, I don't care about party. I'll stand up for education regardless of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. I mean, it's just, it's just magnificent for her. She looks like this true statesman and, and, and guardian of education in the state of Oklahoma. And so after the uh, November 7th, she needs to send Mary Fallon a thank you. <laughs> well, you know, there's some conspiracy, if you want to call them conspiracy theorists in in uh, uh, Republican circles who would suggest that this was all orchestrated and sure. it was really an effort, uh, you know, with all of the parties uh, somewhat engaged to make sure that this had the intended effect that uh, clearly uh, we're talking about right now. It got what it did, especially when you think about her predecessor, uh, who w- I, it was, there were problems, there were, concerns that she was too much close to Fallon. 
that she was basically doing what Fallon asked her to do, especially when they fired the board and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of showed her separation from that. You know, and it's interesting. The major- I think you know, whether it's the majority, it's four or five on that board will we'll be up uh, in April of next year. So there's going to be a, a fairly significant turnover of the State Board of Education under the next governor. So, again, a lot of these uh, big issues that uh, have been thrown out there in front of that board and with the superintendent are going to continue to be really hot topics. Well, it's all because the lawmakers made a law that said that when Fallon stepped in, they made a law that said the governor could come in and erase every board member. Yeah. That's right. That's could, right. So, so yeah, whoever that, the new governor that is, right, is that would apply. You're will right. be able to You're erase. Right. So yeah, that's re- right. Regardless, I would suggest to, to whoever becomes governor next, get the legislature to pass a law. You know, give them some legislative authority for this executive order. I think that I think that the education department's general counsel has uh, some good points about the limits of the mm-hmm. power of the executive to to reach into a, uh, to an agency and command them to do something without any sort of legislative. Well, there was actually an interim so. study, wasn't there? Yeah. That really much, very much mirrored what was in this executive order. So again, there is a lot of this conversation and fact finding on this information already out there. And it all seems to be a fight about nothing because, as it was pointed out in the the story in the Oklahoman, all of the numbers that would come out of the school districts right now that we're looking at come pre. Uh, this last legislative session's budget agreement that infused hundreds of millions of dollars into education. So the budgets are going to be outdated. The numbers aren't going to necessarily be all right. that relevant. So it is it is a fight about nothing. That that does lead itself lend itself <laughs> to the conspiracy theory. Although I just I don't think that there's that level of political organization in the state of Oklahoma right now on on okay, either Ryan, side of, on either that. side of the aisle. You said on either that. Side of the I aisle. understand that. There you go, Ryan and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.